Okay, we're in Revelation chapter 11 this evening, and we are in the middle of the seventh trumpet, which is the second woe uh, that is being pronounced uh, by God in this uh, picture of wrath and judgment that is coming upon a nation. In chapter 10, we were given the imagery of the angel coming uh, with an open scroll in his hand, taking his stand on the land and on the sea, and making an oath before God that there would be no longer be delay, but that the mystery of God that had been spoken of by the prophets would now be revealed. This angel was shown to us earlier in the scriptures back in Daniel chapter 12. And there we see that the angel is predicting the shattering of the power of the holy people. And so this angel now comes back in Revelation Revelation 10 and says there's no longer going to be a delay, but that when the seventh angel sounds the trumpet, then these things were going to be accomplished. Chapter 11 is continuing that imagery and continuing this explanation about what this woe and this judgment is going to look like. It was originally my intention to do all of this chapter, and uh, I mentioned it Wednesday night, and I've uh, found it humorous myself. That So I began to write it, and once I got to the end of verse 2, that was three pages, which is a very lengthy sermon when I get out to the third page, and I went, well, that's all we're going to do is get to the first two verses because here in chapter 11 the details uh, I think become very clear now we are really seeing who is the object of God's wrath that for, for whatever reason rather than opening the book of Revelation and God just being straightforward and saying here's who's being judged God has instead for four or five chapters has kind of methodically moved his way through these pictures of judgment, this graphic imagery, without specifically saying who is the object of God's wrath. What nation are we talking about? Who is receiving the judgment? Chapter 10 has brought some clarity to that, but chapter 11 becomes quite clear and removes, I believe, all doubt whatsoever as who is then receiving the wrath of God. We'll just look at the first two verses tonight. We'll spend our time looking at the imagery behind this. Chapter 11 of Revelation. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. There's a lot to look at there, a lot being said that we're going to spend our time with. First of all, you'll notice in verse 1, there's a picture of being given a measuring rod. That imagery is used both positively and negatively in the Old Testament prophets and in the Scriptures. I'll show you one of the places where it is used negatively. Like in 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 13, we read there, "...and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line." to the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Noticing the measuring there was not good. The city was going to be measured, the people were being measured, and it was for their destruction. It says there that uh, God was going to wipe them like wiping a dish. They're going to get cleaned out. And so it was going to be judgment for them. And so there's an instance where we see using the measuring line is speaking of a negative sense. It is also used used a few times in the Scriptures in a positive sense. For example, in Zechariah, 
Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1, where we see Zechariah saying, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet me and said to him, Run and say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So here is a picture of the positive. Go and measure the city of Jerusalem. Why? Well, to show that God is with His people. Notice there's no walls, but the inhabitants are there because God is protecting them. He will be a fire around them. And so it is used in a positive sense for the people of God. Another place that we see uh, this used positively is at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 15. Speaking with the angel there, John is speaking with him. It says, And one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadium. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. All of this measuring is being done to this heavenly new Jerusalem. When we get out to Revelation 21, you'll see this is a description of the people of God. And so here they are in their perfected state and they are measured and shown that they are with God, they are protected by God. And so there's another instance of it being positive. One other, we won't have the time to turn there unless you'd like to read nine chapters with me if we had time we'd do that. Ezekiel 40 through 40 48, a very lengthy section, and it is the details of the new temple that is being vision, visualized and in a vision to Ezekiel. And in chapter 40, verse 3, you see that there is an angel there who is measuring the temple. And he is measuring the, the, the whole of the city and the temple. And the picture there is of the same, is that though Babylon has destroyed the old temple, Ezekiel is prophesied of a glorious new temple that is going to be restored. It is worth our while just for a moment to stop here and recognize these are the kinds of texts and the images that expose as to why the futurist view of Revelation understands that one day there is going to be a literal temple rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem in the millennial reign of Christ because of these texts. Here with the Ezekiel 40, here are these measurements of this new temple. Revelation 21, measurements of this temple. We go back into the text we saw, Zechariah 2, measurements of a new temple. And so these are the texts that are used to say, well, that's what's going to come. And so the Messiah cannot return and have this second return and bringing about this 1,000 year reign until we have a new temple over there. And so we need to get control of the land. We need to get control of Jerusalem. We need to get the, the Dome of the Rock out of the way so that the new temple can be built. That's where a lot of this comes from. What we're going to see is that Revelation and Ezekiel as well as Zechariah are not speaking in terms of a literal, physical temple. And you'll see why in the explanations that come out of that. But just keep that in mind, is that this is where that 
false interpretation comes from and consider what's being told to us about this temple and we'll see the meaning of that. Notice there in verse 1, so the measuring rod is given, is given and it's like a staff and he's told to measure the temple of God, the altar, and the worshipers, but to leave out the court outside the temple, verse 2, because it's going to be trampled over for 42 months. So this gives us a couple of things as to why we should understand this as a positive measuring and not a negative measuring. First, it seems to be that we have here the saved people of God being described in this temple, this temple imagery. Notice the picture their altar and those who worship there, they are the ones that are being protected. It is those who are on the outside, those who are of the courtyard, they're the ones that are being trampled over. They're the ones that are being destroyed. Those who are the temple and worshiping inside the temple, the implication is they're being protected since those who are on the outside are being trampled over. And that's not an uncommon image throughout the New Testament. Even Revelation, as we began when we were doing our Ignite series, we saw that same imagery in Revelation 3 and verse 12, that those to the conquerors, they would be a pillar in the temple of my God, and never shall he go out of it. And of course not talking about a literal temple, but describing the relationship of the true true people of God, those who conquer, they will be in a preserved, saved relationship with God the Father. And that's what was being promised to the Christians. Do not do overcome, do not give up on your faith, and if you do, you're in the temple of God. You're a pillar there, and you will never go out. We can use other texts as well, like the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's Spirit dwells within you? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The temple imagery is commonly used in the New Testament to refer to the true people of God. Here are the Christians. These are the ones who are faithful and obedient to God. They are pictured in a relationship with Him. They are in the temple and that's conjuring up the imagery of being priests of God, servants of God, worshiping God. And I think that's what verse 1 is carrying out as well. When it describes that the temple, the altar, and those who worship them are all being measured in this temple picture. So I think that's our our, our very first beginning point in remembering here's here's what we have. Here's the true people of God. I'm going to give you Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 as well, where it says there, then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so uh, this is really common to describe the people of God as a temple. The temple is being preserved then. And that is what we have seen back in chapter 6. Remember what was predicted is that though the people of God were going to suffer harm and they were going to go through persecution, they're pictured in chapter 7 as being sealed. They're being spiritually protected and pictured as being victorious. They are with the Lamb and they are going to overcome. And I think that's what this is now beginning to show is again here are the people of God pictured as preserved, pictured as safe, they are with Christ and they are being measured and noted by God. 
One other thing I'd like to add to that is that commonly in a lot of the readings that I, I see about those who take a futurist position is to say, well, you're spiritualizing the temple and you're not allowed to do that. Well, I, would, I first respond with, well, that's what the apostles are doing over and over again. They're saying, you're the temple of God. Those who are the holy followers of Christ, they're the true temple of God. But I think it's important to observe, it's not like everybody and all the Jews thought it was going to be a literal temple, and then one day Christians came around and distorted all of that imagery. Not in the slightest. They're very interesting uh, the Qumran community also spiritualized Ezekiel's temple. And I think that's really interesting. What they did is they saw that the physical temple was polluted and unholy, and they considered themselves the holy remnant of God, the true temple, and were waiting for that physical temple to be renovated and destroyed so that God would come and they'd be the true holy people of God. I find the Qumran community fascinating. It's, it's worth your time of study if you're ever interested in doing some secular things because uh, they had a lot of things pretty spot on. It's somewhat fascinating to me how they had a pretty good grasp uh, of many of the Old Testament prophets. But I have it on the screen there for you. Uh, many of the, the uh, texts to be used just to show that it's not a new convention to see that the temple refers to the holy people of God. Even the first century Jews, many of them also considered that they were the temple, that they were the, the people of God, and used it that same way. In fact, the Qumran community also used the measuring of the temple to describe their own security in God, that they were safe with him regardless of the things that would transpire. So that's, I think, the first picture that we're given here in verse 1 is describing here's the true people of God. They are measured in being safe. Verse 2 then gives us the contrast. The court of the temple, the court that is outside the temple, that's not allowed to be measured. That is going to be cast out and it is described there that it is given over to the nations. And if that was all that was left, I think we would have a very difficult time trying to figure out what does that symbolize? What does that represent? But notice the rest of that verse tells us, I think, a pretty clear picture. He says the holy city is going to be trampled for 42 months. Now, the big question I think people have now is, well, what does that represent? I would, if I had time, I'd go through. Uh, here's, they say this, and they say this, and they say this, and here's what I say. But I'll just give you the what I say, and you can go read it, what everybody else has to say about all that. Uh, typically, though, the generalization, many say that this is referring then to the physical death of the Christians, but verse 1 is describing the spiritual security of the Christians. I don't think that works. I think verse 1 is saying, here are the true people of God. They're measured, they're preserved, they're identified and sealed by God. But those who are not that are the ones that are being judged. They're the ones who are being trampled over. The holy city consistently refers to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, This becomes a, a very clear indicator to us about what God is talking about. The trampling of the holy city. And it's not just simply a prediction to say, you know, well, Jerusalem's going to get run over by the Romans. It's a lot bigger than that. It is describing, as we've seen from chapter 6 all the way down to this point, that the physical nation, the Jewish nation, must be judged. 
And here is the visualization of that. The true people of God are separated out of that group. They are preserved. They're the true holy ones of God. However, the physical nation is not. They are separated and they are being handed over to the nations, to the Gentiles. The Jewish nation is what is coming under judgment. I'd like for you just to to consider, and I'll show you a few passages, but... That distinction has to be critically made a number of times in the New Testament in trying to show how the true holy people of God are not just the physical nation of Israel. That there is a distinction that is constantly made between the two. Galatians chapter 4. It's a really good passage that is where Paul has to make that distinction. Where you have one imagery of Hagar. And what does she represent? She represents the Old Covenant. She represents Mount Sinai. But then there is Sarah. And what does she represent? Well, we're told heavenly, spiritual Jerusalem. And representing the true people of God, the children of promise. In that, there is this distinction intended to show just because you were part of the physical nation did not mean you were the true people of God. If you participated in our Roman study, you'll know that that is one of the overriding key thoughts of that book is showing who are the true people of God. It's not just the physical nation. In fact, Paul argues it's never been the physical nation. It's always been those who have been obedient. Another place is over in Hebrews chapter 12. I think I've got them. If I don't, I'll take it anyway. Hebrews chapter 12. Turn over there with me. Notice the imagery there. Hebrews 12, verse 18. It's a text that we commonly uh, look at and I think know fairly well, but there's a subtle statement that's made there that I think it's easy to, to pass by. Hebrews 12, verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg, that no further messages would be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Stop there for a minute. What is he talking about? Exodus, Mount Sinai, that was the command. Nobody come near the mountain. If anybody comes near the mountain, if even an animal comes near the mountain, it's going to be killed. Verses 18 and 19, remembering what happened on Mount Sinai. The blazing fire, the darkness and gloom, the sounding of the trumpet as God was going to speak to them the Ten Commandments. The beginning representation here is think of Mount Sinai. Old Covenant, Law of Moses is what is being brought to mind. Verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So he says, you haven't come to that. Verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. Well, what's the implication? Not the physical Jerusalem. You're part of the heavenly Jerusalem to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. Again, notice the contrast. You've come to a new covenant, not to the old covenant. You've come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai. You're under a new way under Christ. Verse 25, 
This is probably usually where we stop, but this is where I want to see the point that's being made. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns in heaven. Okay, here's the contrast. If God gave His covenant through the law of Moses there on Mount Sinai, and look what God did to them when they rejected, what's going to happen to us now that He's given it through His Son in heaven? What will be of us if we reject this new covenant? Verse 26. At that time his voice shook the earth reminding us of Sinai but now he has promised now look at the promise yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens now we would stop there and go I have no idea what he means thankfully there's a verse 27 to tell us what in the world that's talking about this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Notice what he just said. He just said the old covenant, the temple, the whole Jewish system, that has to be shaken. It has to be removed. It has to be discarded. Why? To show the proper way to come to God. To reveal this new covenant. This new system that we are under. And so the, that these things can remain. That's why he says in verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful, for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are in the kingdom of God in Christ. That can't be shaken. But the old system was what would be shaken. It was going to be set aside. It was going to be removed. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I'm trying to get you to see, and hopefully that text helps that, is that there is great effort made by the apostles and the writers of the New Testament to show the separation between the true people of God, spiritual Jerusalem, His holy people, versus the physical nation, the old covenant, the physical Jewish nation, that had to be set aside. Judgment was going to come against it. And I think that is why this imagery is used in these first two verses of here is the temple, it's measured, they're safe. But those who are not part of that, those who are outside, they are being judged. And to help us know, well, is he just talking about all unbelievers or is he being more specific? He's using a very specific statement here to say the holy city is being trampled. There is only one other place in the Scriptures where this language is used, that the trampling of the holy city is going to occur and it's going to happen by the nations. And that is over in Luke chapter 21. And this is a very important text. Luke 21 is a parallel to Matthew 24. You can kind of go back and forth and see the parallel. Each case, Jesus is predicting and discussing the destruction of Jerusalem. And you see that there in chapter 21 and verse 20 of of Luke. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Which I would like to add for your just a little... Uh, extra trivia knowledge. If you go over to Matthew 24, there's this very curious, difficult phrase and talking about the abomination of desolation. Let the reader understand. The parallel is this right here. The abomination of desolation, setting up where it ought not be, let the reader understand, according to the prophet Daniel, 
is that verse right there. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's what the abomination of desolation was predicting. You go back to Daniel, you'll see that imagery clearer. But there, verse 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. There will be great distress upon the earth and the wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And now watch the ending because this is where our Revelation 11.2 comes in. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The same exact language. The trampling of the holy city, the trampling of Jerusalem was going to take place and is going to happen by the Gentiles, by the nations. And so I think then what verses 1, verse 1 and verse 2 are trying to show us then is, all right, the people of God, they're suffering persecution, but the object of God's wrath in all of this is the physical Jewish nation. The holy city is going to be trampled. And here is now the angel telling John, saying, here's what's going to happen. Do you remember what Jesus said about the abomination of desolation? Do you remember what He told you about how that city is going to be trampled? Here it is. And all that He adds to it is now the time frame. Jesus said, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's kind of curious. We don't know what that is. Notice what John says. John's told here by the angel, they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. I've put off that language for a while. It's time to now conquer it and deal with that language of 42 months. Interesting time marker that's given to us about this destruction that's going to happen. Now... It is certainly fascinating. I absolutely agree. I think it is certainly interesting that 42 months, it adds up to three and a half years, and that is how long approximately the Jewish or the Roman siege was against the city of Jerusalem. I think that is fascinating. The Romans came in around 66, was all over in the mid of 70 AD, and I think that's very fascinating. But... Let me just throw cold water on that and tell you the reason why. We have started off from the very beginning pointing out we're taking these numbers symbolically unless the text demands otherwise. We cannot now suddenly change that method of interpretation and say, well, I like 42 months literally, so I'm going to take it here. Because that's not fair. Because then others are going to like the thousand years later on and want to take it literally, and that's not going to work. We must take the images as symbols unless something in the text demands otherwise. Up to this point, we have taken every single number that we have come across as a representation, as a symbol, except in chapter 1, where we were told about seven churches in Asia, and then the letters there in chapters 2 and 3. Why did we take that literally? Because the text demanded it by naming them and saying Ephesus and Smyrna and Sardis. That's what forced us to go, okay, he's not just giving us a symbol here. He really means that there's seven churches. Otherwise, he just could have said, hey, he just wrote the seven and on we go. 
So I think it's important to be consistent here and go, we've taken all the other numbers up to this point. We took the thirds and the fourths. We've taken all of those fractions that we saw in the seals and in the trumpets as symbols. We must do the same here. And I think that is also very important because when we get to chapter 13, we're going to be told about the beast doing something for 42 months. And he's not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we've got to be careful and define what does the 42 months stand for? What does it represent? There's a number of different usages of this time frame by the prophets and in the book of Revelation. You'll probably remember the time, times, and half a time. Probably most notable. See that in Daniel quite a bit. A time is understood to be one year, and so what's interesting is that a time being one year and times would be two years, and half a time is half a year adds up to three and a half years. Forty-two months is three and a half years. And I'll save you the calculator work, but we're going to read about 1,260 days in the next verse. Notice verse 3 of Revelation 11. Authorities grant they'll prophesy how long? 1,260 days. Guess what that adds up to? Three and a half years, 42 months. It keeps working out the same way. So what is that trying to represent? What does that mean? When Daniel speaks of a time, times, and half a time, when here he says they're going to trample the holy city for 42 months, verse 3 is going to say they're going to see these witnesses prophesying for 1,260 days. What is all of this pointing to? What is it describing? And in every single instance, you will notice that this is representing... It's a limited amount of time, but it's a time of severity, a time of distress, a time of upheaval every single time. You go back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. The shatter of the power of the holy people is going to come to an end at the end of the time, times, and half a time. Well, the shattering of the power of the holy people is persecution, distress, and problems that's going to arise. Same thing that is going on here. Look at that in verse 2 when you say, the holy city is going to be trampled. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's going to be bad, distress, persecution, destruction. But it's all going to be for a limited amount of time. Instead of saying, and this is going to last for 1,000 years. We'll see a thousand years later on. A thousand years, we're talking about a pretty big span. Okay, that's a pretty big symbol. And you say 42 months, well, that's a long time, but it's not enormous. It's going to be a limited amount of time, but it's not going to be good. It's going to be bad. And so when you read about those 42 months, that's what should be coming to our minds. Go over to chapter 13 real quick and see the same thing. Chapter 13, when we'll get there in a couple of weeks. You see this beast rising up, and it's a a pretty awful beast because he's got blasphemous names on his heads. And and you'll notice in verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon, for he'd given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was caused to exercise authority for forty-two Months. Same kind of imagery. Jump down to verse 7 to understand what the 42 months means. Verse 7. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. 42 months, three and a half years, time times half a time, 1,260 days. It's telling you things are going to be bad. This is a bad amount of time. A significant 
but limited amount of time. The intention is not for all of them to break out their calendar and go, okay, we're counting down and now the Roman Empire is not going to kill the Christians anymore. Uh, That wasn't going to be just 42 months. It's a much bigger time frame involved. But it is saying... After that amount of time, God's going to do something about it. There is going to be judgment that's going to be processed here by God and executed on the nation. So that's what I think verses 1 and 2 are setting up for us. Now the rest of chapter 11 is going to be fairly difficult in this imagery of the two witnesses. And I certainly encourage you to get a look at these witnesses and what they are doing and what they represent as all of this is going on. And we'll notice some very graphic imagery about the city where their Lord was crucified. And again, drawing in the imagery of the holy city and the judgment that must come against the, the physical Jewish nation because their, their sins had filled up to the uttermost. I want to leave you then with just one point for tonight. Just one out of that. Because to me, verse 1 sets a great graphical image of the things that the apostles had also prophesied and spoken about in terms of our relationship with God. And that is the great reminder that we are the temple of the living God. And by saying that about us, there are responsibilities and requirements for us. And that's what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, is that those who are the temple of God, those who belong to Him, they cannot associate with darkness. They cannot belong to the ways of the world, but must be separated from them. And they have God to be theirs, that they will follow Him and serve Him. It's a a beautiful picture to say, here we are as the true people of God, worshiping Him. We have been given the access to go into the very throne room of God, to be able to ask for mercy and grace, to offer our prayers, to give Him our service, This is the picture that is being shown to us is now God is responding in preservation of His people. That they are secure. They are safe because they have followed after Him. As we go through the week, we must be careful that we are not in fellowship with the things of the world. One of the things that Revelation is going to show us as we move through the book is all of the people and the nations who stand against God receive judgment. And here is the first act being shown. Here is a nation that had been against anything against God. Jesus even said that they were preventing people from entering the kingdom of God. Their judgment has come. We'll see later on. Here is the beast. And it must also be judged because it was sinful and speaking blasphemous words and standing against God. Christ is going to be victorious and judge it. And then we'll get to the great conclusion of victory that you already know about. Satan will also be judged and cast into the lake of fire, reminding us that we cannot be in fellowship with darkness. We are in a relationship with the holy God, and we must live up to that very calling and remember who we are when we go out into the world. When we're on the job and we're dealing with our friends and all of the hassle that we have of the things of life, Never forget who you are, that you are built upon Christ as the cornerstone upon the apostles and prophets, that we are all joined together as the holy people of God, worshiping Him in spirit and truth. Pull your song books out. We'll sing invitation song. Would love to do the rest of that chapter, but 
as you can see, that wasn't going to work out. There's so much that's being said right there about the temple and about the holy city. And it reminds us, and I think what we have seen in, from chapter 6 through chapter 10, if God would judge the true olive tree, as, as Paul would term it in Romans chapter 11, if He would judge the physical nation for their sins, how much more will He judge those who have been grafted into the tree, who are wild olive shoots? He will certainly judge us and remove us out of the kingdom if we are not serving Him with all of our heart and living up to the calling that He's given to us. We beg you to come to Jesus tonight to turn away from your sins, that believe that He is the Son of God who died for you, and died for the world so that you could have a relationship with Him to receive eternal life. And that happens by being immersed in water, having your sins washed away. That's your beginning point to enter a relationship with Him, asking to have your sins washed away. We beg you to come forward tonight and do that while we stand and while we sing.